I want to invite you to take your Bible and go with me to Joshua chapter 3. It's where we're going to be today as we jump into a new series called Together We. This week I heard someone make this statement, no one can whistle a symphony. Now, it may take you a moment to consider the point of that statement is, so I'll help you out. Uh, this statement is pointing out the fact that there are some things in life that we can never accomplish on our own. Right? I don't care how skilled or how loud of a whistler you may be, you can never produce the beauty or the depth that a symphony can produce, right? And so as we go to this time of diving into God's Word and going into this series, Together We, we're going to take a look at um, four new core values for us as a church. And as we do it, uh, we're going to turn our attention to this reality of Together We, as we were navigating this season of a new season for us as a church. Uh, we were having these conversations about who we are as a church, and over and over again, we were talking about we are this and we are this, and said, you know what? Uh, we, need to, we need to embrace the, the truth that God has called us to do this Christian life together, especially as the church. When we turn to God's word for, personal, uh, for, for direction, we, we see it in our personal lives. But also when we turn to God's word, we see his design for the church, right? His design uh, uh, that, that, that the church is called to be a symphony and not just a whistler or a bunch of whistlers. We're called to work together and to be together and accomplish great things together. We know that he does call people to uh, unique callings to lead in unique ways. But God's plan all along, we see in the scriptures that all along his plan has been for people to experience what he desires to do in them and what he desires to do through them to make a marked difference in the world together. And so today we're going to go to Joshua chapter 3 and we're going to in some ways continue the story that we have been uh, unpacking throughout the summer in our basket to casket series, the life, the unsettled life of Moses. If you're here last week, you know that we buried, well, we didn't bury Moses, uh, but Moses was buried. Uh, boy, that would uh, cause some headlines, right? Um, we didn't bury him, uh, but, but, but the story continues, right? And, and it is a story that for many of us will be familiar with, but it is a story where I think we see the significance of this together we idea. And so uh, today, as we work through it, we're going to see, I think, some things that are helpful for us in our personal journey for sure. But I think more importantly, the significance of what it looks like to experience it together. So I want to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 13, and we will go down through verse 17. It says, When the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. And when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the ark of the covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season, but as soon as the priest carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, the city next to Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of, Z of, of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. 
The priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Let's pray together. God, we devote all of our attention to your word today. We say, Lord, that we desire and we need to hear from you. We're grateful to once again revisit a moment where we see truly this this God-sized moment where we see your hand at work among your people. God, as we consider these days for our church, Lord, Lord, we want to see those God-sized moments continue to happen. We recognize, Lord, just as we've proclaimed today that you are the same God. You are that same God. And Lord, it is our desire today that together we would experience all that you have for us. We desire that we'd experience all that you have for us in this moment. And so, Lord, we're trusting that your word doesn't return void. We're trusting that spirit of God, that you speak into our hearts like nothing or no one else can. So, God, would you have your way with us in this time? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. A familiar story, but a story that I am hoping will capture your heart once again and fan the flame of faith in you individually and for us corporately as a church today. And we would see that together we should seek, or together we seek, God-sized moments in our lives. Together we seek God-sized moments in our lives. Now in our scripture reading today, because I like you and I care about you, I didn't make you stand for the entire reading of chapter three, all right? But we are going to navigate through chapter three today because there are some important parts, a part of what is happening here uh, in, in this moment as they come to this faith moment. And it's a faith moment, as you saw there at the very end in verse 17, it is a faith moment that is very intentionally shown that it was all of them, Right? Until, as it says there in verse 17, until all Israel cross, or the entire nation cross. It is re-emphasizing that understanding that this was about all of them together experiencing what God had for them. How did they experience it? Together. Let's begin at this place, as I think the chapter shows us, is that together we follow his presence. Together we follow his his presence. One of the significant moments of this crossing is how God ordained it to take place, right? We know, even from our series on Moses, we understand that water has never been an obstacle for God, has it? Right? It's not an issue for him, right? It's not a problem for him. But we're going to see here in greater detail, so so we're going to see here in greater detail, that when the Israelites crossed the river, it was clear here that there was great intentionality of how God was going to do it. We read in verse 13, it tells us that when the feet of the priest, when it got to the water's edge, what we see here is that they're not empty-handed, are they? It tells us that they're carrying the Ark of the covenant. And we talk in the series on Moses about the ark and uh, the, the contents of the ark. Uh, for us today, especially in Joshua 3, and as you go into chapter 4 as well, that 14 times, no, excuse me, 16 times the ark of the covenant is mentioned in these two chapters. Here's what that's saying it's important, right? It's an important part of this moment. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar, it was a golden box. It was roughly four feet long by two feet wide by two feet tall. It had rings along the edge where they would take poles and they would run them through those rings and it would allow the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant without touching it. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, you had 
you had uh, the Ten Commandments. You had a jar of manna so they could remember God's provision. And then they had Aaron's staff that had budded. And so uh, there's your trivia for the day, all right? And so <clears throat> they're carrying this Ark of the Covenant. But what was important is not necessarily what was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was the symbolization of the Ark of the Covenant. Understand that the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence among his people. In fact, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim. And it tells us in Psalm 80, verse 1, it said that God resided between the two cherubim atop the Ark. So we know that God's presence is everywhere, but there was something significant about this Ark as it symbolized God's presence among the people. And as we look at, at how this unfolds, at the beginning of the chapter, we find out why the priests are there. God had instructed the priests to lead, lead the way through the camp and for the leaders and the people to fall in line. All right? So don't miss it. There's intentionality here that the ark was going to lead the way. Here's what that meant. Consider this. There was not a step that the people would take towards the Jordan River that God had not already been. Every step they would take, God had led the way. This was a clear reminder for them that they were to follow his presence to where he was leading. And we see some instruction here in Joshua chapter 3 of what it looked like for them to follow the presence of God. All right? The first one is this, is at a distance. They were to follow at a distance. If you look with me in verse 4, you see the instruction was to keep a distance about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Here's what Joshua understood, what God had commanded them. Don't get too close because you don't have Google Maps and your spouse isn't sitting in the passenger seat, all right? I seriously just saw some elbows, like, yep, that's you, right? So they're saying, listen, you haven't been this way before. And so you, you need to keep a distance of a thousand yards, right? So you can see which way we're going. Now, it, it, is, it is not out of line for there to be instruction to God's people to keep distance from time to time, right? If you remember back in Exodus chapter 19, when God gave the law to the people, if you remember that moment, God had told Moses, Moses, listen, I know you've been speaking on my behalf to the people, but not now. I'm going to speak directly to the people. And he gave them instruction. He said, listen, they are not to touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they will die. Now, why would God give such a, an instruction like that? Because God recognized his holiness. He recognized his glory. He recognized that he is a perfect being, and he was be, going to be speaking to people who are imperfect in their sin. And so we see this moment where he is putting distance between himself and the people out of recognition of his holiness and his glory and his power. So I think there's an element here in their followership of his presence that, yes, it is for the direction in which they should go, but also understanding they weren't to touch the ark, and here it is to be at a distance. I think there is a reverence component to this following God's presence. I love as one commentator says, talking about the uniqueness of the tension and who we know God to be. But we recognize the closeness of Christ to the believer, and we see Jesus in his earthly ministry and how he encountered people and how he touched people and met with people, even those that their culture considered to be the biggest outcasts. 
But at the same time, we recognize and we should recognize the holiness of God, the power of God, recognizing that the angels, in response to God's holiness in his presence, all they can say day after day, moment after moment, is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, right? There's a recognition of his holiness. And so this commentary says, these two aspects of God's nature, his close, comforting presence and his awesome, fearsome glory are kept in a healthy balance in the Bible. But then listen to the warning that he gives here. The latter is in danger of being forgotten in some wings of the church today. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And we embrace the closeness and the comfort of Christ, and we should. But if we do that and neglect God's holiness and his power, that should be a red flag that goes up. And so they're following here the Ark of the Covenant. They're following it and to know where to go. They're following it with reverence, but also we see here the call to do it with repentance. The call to do it with repentance. Look at me in verse 5. It says, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Now, I know that word consecrate is not a word that you use often, right? You don't say, go out and consecrate the vehicle, all right? Go, go consecrate the van or the truck, right? You know, but it is a word that implies this idea of, of cleaning and really preparing oneself. Again, going back to Exodus chapter 19, the same idea was used in Exodus chapter 19, the call for them to consecrate themselves. What did it mean? Well, it meant to bathe themselves and to change their clothes, to put on clean clothes. So for some of you that have a middle schooler, you find yourself saying this often, right? Go consecrate yourself, right? Go consecrate yourselves, right? For most of us, this is a regular rhythm in our life. Not necessarily like the, the intentionality of consecrate, but just bathing ourselves, right? And wearing clean clothes. That's a normal rhythm in our life. But you understand, for these people, it was not. They were not in a position that this could be a part of their daily rhythm. And so the call here to consecrate themselves was one that called for great intentionality and even some sacrifice. Well, what was the point of it? Well, understand that in the Bible, the imagery of washing one's body and changing clothes, it symbolized making a new beginning with the Lord. We see in the scripture, in Psalm 51, familiar Psalm 51, sin is pictured as defilement. And so God has to cleanse us before we can truly follow him. We see in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Colossians chapter 3, over and over again, this idea continues in the New Testament for the call for us to, to remove that which stains us and to put on, which we know to be righteousness, to put on righteousness, to come before him, to take off the old and to put on the new, all right? And so together, they're following the symbolic presence of God to where he was leading them. And they were doing it with reverence, and they were doing it with repentance, knowing that God was going before them. And I have to tell you, as we consider today, what does it mean to say together we follow his presence? We have to understand that as a church, we are called to follow in the same manner, constantly pursuing him and his presence with reverence and repentance. We always must go where he has gone before. We're not to be out front. We're not to drift to the left. We're not to drift to the right. We are, to, we are not to stand still. We have to move forward together into wherever he is leading. And remember, you, you may not know this, but, but there was a moment prior to this where they had actually tried to go into the promised land. Some of you remember this moment where, where they said, hey, we're going to go. And God said, hey, you don't need to go. And if you do go, just know you're going without my presence. And if you don't remember, let me just give you a little hint. It didn't go well for them because God had not gone before them. 
And it is the same today. Let me say it this way, that God's presence in our lives, in our church, in our worship services, it is the greatest end to which we can pray and the greatest desire that we should have for ourselves. Why? Right? That's a strong statement. Right? God's presence in our lives, in our church, in our services, the greatest end to which we can pray and the greatest desire which we should have for ourselves. Why? Because nothing stays the same when it encounters the presence of God. Some of you, you have seen and think about moments in your life where you've seen that to be true. You, you encountered God in such a way that it shaped you, it changed you. Maybe that was in a revival service. Maybe that was on a short-term mission trip where you were sitting with some people and you had the opportunity to, to share your faith with them and you just sensed God's presence in that moment. Maybe, maybe for you, it was sometime this summer as you got up one morning before it was 115 degrees outside, right? And you sat on the porch and you, and you opened God's Word and you began to read God's Word. And as you were reading the words of this ancient book, you still saw that it had contemporary application because God's Spirit was taking His Word and there was a season that you're walking in and the Spirit of God was speaking so clearly to you in that moment, and you just knew God is here. It shapes us. It changes us. And so as a church, we absolutely, together, we must follow his presence to where he is leading, knowing that we'll never be the same. And again, I want you to consider, as God's people here in Joshua 3, as they're heading towards a river, there's no bridge. There's no raft. There's no understanding of what's even going to happen on the other side in full detail, but they were confident of this, that everywhere my foot steps, God has gone before me. Man, what great confidence in their lives. And here's the reality, is that that confidence, it helps us to take that first step. Uh, together, we follow his presence, but also together, we walk by faith. Together, we walk by faith. For some of you, you've been a part of this church for three, four, five decades. For some of you, you've been a part of this church for about 30 minutes now. <laughs> but understand, this church has a history of walking by faith. For over 100 years, this church has exhibited being willing to hear God, take him at his word, and do as he says. Even from the beginning of our church. Again, over 100 years ago, some people on the east side of the river that they looked over the Washtenaw River and God gave them a heart and a vision for a, for a new church that would be vibrant and active and making a difference in the community. And so they began to go meet with some families and say, hey, this is what we believe God's putting in our hearts. And then they would end up at Crosley Elementary and the rest is history. Think about moments of faith of pastor would lock himself in an office and say, I'm not coming out because we're in a time of great need and we need God to show up and we don't know what to do or where to go. And so he called his wife and said, I'm not coming home because I'm locking myself here till God speaks. And eventually God spoke. I think about moments of faith where, for some, they have gotten out of their comfort zone and jumped on an airplane, and they've gone to a place with a team from our church, and they've gone to a country where it's illegal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we have gone by faith because we know there are people in that country who have no idea who Jesus is. I'm not saying they haven't put their faith in Jesus. I'm saying they don't know who Jesus is. Like, hey, do you know Jesus? No. Does he live in the next village over? And there have been people, a part of this church, that by faith have put themselves at risk and in danger, going by faith because they know God's heart for those people, because every nation and tongue will gather around the throne. By faith, over and over again, this church has exhibited faith. And hear me, church, 
Now is not the time to stop. We must hear from God, to take him at his word, and to walk by faith, to follow him wherever he is leading. And that's what the Israelites did, right? Look at me in verse 9. It says, Then Joshua told the Israelites, Come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Now notice, this is early in Joshua's leadership here. This could be a moment where Joshua could desire to establish himself. It could be a moment where he says, Listen, I've developed this idea of how we're going to get across. That's not what he does here. He says, listen to what God has said. He points them to what God has said. And then understand that there was a call for every person to walk by faith into what God has said. If you look with me in verse 8, there was a call to faith for the priest. Verse 8, command the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Not just that they're going to have to stand in the Jordan, that their feet are going to have to touch the water. Remember, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They are carrying the most prized possession of the people, and they're going to have to step into the water. For the leaders to lead out in 12 and 13, we see the call to choose 12 men from among the tribes of Israel. Eventually, these men would be used to set up these monuments to remember what God has done. But then for all the people, in verse 14, when the people broke camp, Across the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. I want you to consider for a moment. These people have been in, in the wilderness. They've now made their way. They're, they're east of the Jordan River. Okay. In fact, it tells us they had left the Acacia Grove in verse 1. This is about 10 miles uh, east of the Jordan River. So let's say Delhi. All right? That's probably too far. But, <laughs> but, but, but they're east of the river, and they have now, they're now going to make their way there. But there was a call here that the people had to break camp. What did that mean? It meant in this place that they had settled, that actually they had had some victories over some different groups of people. And so in some sense, they were in a place of comfort. And here, once again, God is saying, you need to leave your comfort because this is not home. I'm calling you to more. There's a place that I have promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God was, uh, was going to fulfill that promise to them. But to fulfill that promise, it required the faith of the people to pack up all that they had in a place, I think, of some level of comfort to go into a place that was going to bring some seasons of being uncomfortable. Understand, when we step out in faith, we're trusting what God has told his people in his word. And again, as they're coming to this river, understand, and, and the author gives us some clarity here, that it tells us that in verse 15, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season, right? So, so the author here is telling us that they're not just going to be crossing the Jordan, but they're going to be crossing the Jordan at a flood stage. Historians tell us that at this time, in a flood stage of the Jordan River, you're looking at over a mile wide. So there's a call for faith. You think about the call for faith for the people. As, 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 as God says, the water's not going to stop until your feet hit the water. I want you to imagine for a moment. Now, this is not in the Word, all right? We're just processing through this a little bit. Imagine for a moment there is the priest, as they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they're leading towards the river. You think about young Joshua as he's coming alongside them. And they look behind them and they see the leaders of Israel and every person following their lead. Some of you in here, you've had responsibility before for, for something that you knew included a lot of people. Maybe it was dinner at your family reunion. They said, hey, dinner's on you. Figure it out, right? Maybe it was something in the workplace or something in your neighborhood. And, 
And there was that moment where you're just feeling, I want you to imagine for the priests, for the leaders, for Joshua, as they're, as they're trusting God and they're, they're having to walk by faith. And as they get to the edge where now they can see the river, okay, we're here. And then they get even further where they can see how far that water extends. So they look forward and they see the obstacle of the river in front of them. And then they look behind and they feel the weight of responsibility of those that are following in their way. Step by step, walking by faith. No doubt there was a risk to what they were doing as they would have to step their feet in the water. But understand, the greater risk here was not walking by faith. It was allowing the obstacle of a flowing river to create stagnation in their feet and more importantly, in their faith. Listen, the opportunity that you and I have when we understand that the presence of God goes before us and we recognize who he is, it enables us, gives us confidence to walk by faith so we don't allow the obstacles of this life to produce stagnation in our lives. For some of you today, God has you here just to hear that statement. You're at a moment in your life where where you know you've got to take a, a faith step. I don't know what that faith step is for you, but here's what I'm confident of. You'll never see what God can do if you don't take the step. And today I want to invite you in your personal life that you would consider what is that faith step that he's calling you to? And maybe as you're considering what that faith step looks like, maybe there are some trusted spiritual leaders in your life. Maybe myself or Woods or your life group leader or a trusted friend that you need to sit and say, hey, this is what I think God's doing. Can you speak into this? Can you help me uh, know exactly what this needs to look like as you turn to God's word and see how God's affirming that in his word or not? But maybe today the spirit of God has you here because you need to hear, take the step. Take the step. Church, if we fail to walk by faith together, we settle for stagnation. And here's what I'm convinced of. Nothing good ever comes from stagnation. But when we step out in faith, we can experience what only God can do. And that's exactly what happens here. So together we walk by faith. And together we experience God-sized moments. I love this in verse 5. It says, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourself because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Let me ask you, how would you sleep that night? I know some kids, you know, when they got a ball game the next day, right, they sleep in their uniform, right? Just so antsy. Some of you students in the room, I know you were like that the night before school. Maybe not. All right. But just think about that. Tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. What if you got that word from Joshua? I'd have a hard time closing my eyes, thinking about all that God wanted to do and that he was going to do. And and Joshua is able to make this statement with confidence. And here's why. It's because he understands that his God is the only one who can do God-sized things. Look at me in 10 and 11. It says, Joshua said, you will know that the living God is among you. And that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and who else woods? The Mosquitoites. That's right. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you had me. And the Mosquitoites. I had to say it in the other two services, but I knew you'd have my back. When the ark, some of you are like, what just happened? All right. <laughs> 
We, we didn't rehearse that beforehand either, all right? When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Here's what I don't want you to miss. When Joshua is saying this, of what God is going to do, he's going to do wonders among them tomorrow. He's confident of that because he knows who his God is. He says here in verse 10, you know that the living God is among you. That, that phrase, living God, it's the only three other times in the Old Testament is that title used of God. There's significance here in recognition of these people that are, that are currently in the promised land. He says, listen, they may have gods, but they're false gods. They're empty gods. They're not living gods. Our God is the one true God. But not only that, in verse 11, it says, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, look at the clause that it gives there, of the whole earth goes ahead of you. Here's what he's saying. Our God is sovereign. Our God is over all things. Right? And so for him to do wonders among them, to take this river and, 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 and to stop it so the people could cross, listen, that's a non-issue for our Lord. Why? Because he's the Lord over the whole earth. That's the significance we see in Matthew where Jesus calms the storm. Right? In that moment of him calling the, calming the storm, it, it was not just to wow and impress people. It communicated that Jesus has authority over creation just as God has authority over creation. Therefore, when Jesus says, I am, he's claiming divinity. And what he does with the storm, it affirms his claim. And so he's saying, listen, God's going to do wonders among us tomorrow. And here's how I know it, because I know who my God is. I believe there are some churches in our country, some churches in this world, that they miss out on seeing God-sized moments happen because they have too low of a view of God. They don't believe God for who He is, that He is the living God. He is the Lord of the whole earth. And then in 15 through 17, we see the moment unfold. Verse 15, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season, but as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still. Rising up in a mass, it extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the ark of the Lord's covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the river. The point here is not just that the people had crossed, although that was God being true to the promise that he had made to them, but the manner in which they had, they had done it by this glory, glorious and mighty miracle of God. What an amazing moment that God had done it again. And as, it's hard for us to catch up because I've been skipping us all over chapter 3, but if you were to read this from beginning to end, what you notice here is that the author, when it comes to this moment of climax, the author is actually slowing down and giving you more details. Right, some of you, you have that child or grandchild or maybe that kid in the neighborhood that he comes and he tells you a story and the story should be this long and it's this long. Are you with me? You with me? Okay. Some of you are like, yeah, they're sitting right next to me. All right. But, and listen, sometimes that's just a kid so excited, right? They just have a hard time being able to, you know, tie the, tie the bow, right? But, but oftentimes when an author does it, they're doing it for a reason. They want you to lean in. They want you to feel it. And for many of us in here, probably 99% of us are at a disadvantage because we know the story. But it's a lean-in moment of, okay, the feet have now hit the water. What is this wonder going to be that God was going to do among them? And we see, it tells us here, that 20 miles to the north, it tells us that the water, the, the term literally is heaped up. This is the same word that would have been used in the Red Sea crossing, that, that, it, that it heaped up. And in case you want to chalk this up to something 
that had happened upstream. The writer makes it very clear the miracle that had happened here when it tells us in verse 17, note it two times, that they crossed on dry ground. God's such a show-off, isn't he? Here's what I love about this moment. And and I've read this story, I don't know how many times. I mean, I, I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't know this story of them crossing the Jordan. But until this week, I've never considered it in this manner. It, it tells us here that, that, that the city of Adam next to Zarethan, again, about 20 miles north where the water heaps up. And it tells us that it cuts off all the way to the Dead Sea. Now, I, I, I've not stood in that spot. I, actually, we will be at the Jordan River here in a couple of months, our, our group that's going to Israel. But... but I, I'm pretty convinced that as they stood in that spot and they looked north to that direction where the water was heaped up, I'm pretty convinced they couldn't see 20 miles upstream. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty convinced they probably couldn't see 20 miles upstream. And it tells us that it cut off all the way to the Dead Sea. I'm pretty convinced they couldn't see to the Dead Sea. What does that mean? Well, statistically, it tells us that over 30% of the river had been affected. But here's the significance of when we say effective. Here's what we mean. The river wasn't disrupted. It disappeared. Like, think about that for a moment, right? In the Red Sea, they're walking through the Red Sea, and it's like they're walking through an aquarium, right? As the water is part, they're walking through the parted water. But in this moment, the river ceases to exist. He said he would do wonders among them, didn't he? And here they are crossing on dry ground. I love what Tony Evans, pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Church, says. He says, the Lord quick dried the earth where the river had been. No feet stuck in the mud. No cartwheel bogged down. This was no freak act of nature. It was an act of God. The living God. The Lord of the whole earth. Warren Wearsby says this, unless we step out by faith and get our feet wet, we're not likely to make much progress in living for Christ and serving him. There's a call for faith for each of us and an understanding that when we step out in faith, God responds. And here's what I love. Remember, this generation of people that are crossing the Jordan is not the generation that walked through the Red Sea. Right? You with me in that? Their knowledge of God delivering his people through water, it was all secondhand. It was all of what their parents had said, maybe for some of their grandparents, what they had told them about. But now it says that the entire nation crossed together. I think about the weeks and months and years ahead as as they would reflect on what God had done in this moment. As they would share about, do you remember when, when like we couldn't even tell where the river was supposed to be? Like it was just gone. The water was gone. And and we walked around the priests as they stood right there in the middle holding the Ark of the Covenant. And how how we just all kind of made our way around them and then gathered back together. Do you remember that? And those that are sitting there listening, you know how they would respond? I know. I was there. You have that friend in your life? They want to reflect on times of the past and they forget that you were present. Do you remember our junior year when we had that substitute teacher, right? And, and we all changed seats. And then when the teacher left, we did this. And you're like, yeah, I sat right next to you. But then even when you tell them that, they just keep going, don't they? Yeah, no, I know, I know. But, but then, right, when the teacher came back in, that's when we all had the paper balls that we had wadded up. And we all threw them. And then we went down to the principal. 
I know I was there, right? You, we all have that friend, right? I want you to think about this. For the people of Israel, they had experienced this God-sized moment, and what changed for them is they could now stop saying, I heard, and they could start saying, I know. You see, the beauty of following his presence, and the beauty of together walking by faith, is that together we can look at one another, and we don't have to say, hey, I heard, but now we can say, I know. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and just say, I heard a bunch of stuff. But I want to see it. I want to experience. I want to see the Lord do wonders among us. And it calls for us to trust him and to follow his presence and to walk by faith. The most significant step of faith that we can take today for some of us is to take the step of crossing over from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Bible is clear that we have all sinned, and that sin separates us from this holy, perfect, wonder-working God. But the God in his love for you has not just parted some water, but that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a vicious death, and was buried, and three days later had power over death and the grave and sin, and he rose again. And the Bible says today that you can cross over into the wilderness of this sinful world, into the promised land of his presence by giving your life to follow Jesus to consecrate yourself, to acknowledge your sin before God, to ask him to come into your life and to change you, to make you a new person, to give your life, to follow him, to walk by faith. And for some of us today, that's the decision that you need to make today. For some, it's a step of faith in your personal life. As you know, there's a season in front of you that is coming and God's called you to something. And today, the spirit of God in that sweet but firm voice is saying, let's go. My prayer for all of us today, again, is that this is fan the flame for us as a church to say, God, we're not going to settle in stagnation, but we want to keep walking by faith. Part of this series is to help our church understand the direction of where we believe God is leading us with these new core values. And it's going to culminate on September 17th, the last week of this series, as an opportunity for us to express faith. If you've been a part of our church for a number of years now, you know that uh, one of the intentional things that we do is what we call our See To It Fund. Uh, that is what all of our giving goes into this one fund, into this one place, a See To It Fund. It is what fuels our mission to see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And one of the unique things we do here at First West is every two years we ask the people of First West that are members and regular attenders, we ask you that you would take a pledge card and that you would, to the best of your ability, as you pray and seek the Lord, of saying over the next two years, this is what we feel like as a family or as an individual, it's going to look like for us to invest in seeing to it that no one misses the grace of God. And so on September 17th, we're going to ask that you would come prepared to present that pledge to the Lord. Now again, let me be very clear. I don't know who gives what in this church, Right? I'm not going to ask you to hand them to me so I can open and be like, all right, try that again. All right, that's not going to happen. I don't know who gives what. That's going to be between you and the Lord. But then also our finance office, here's, here's why this is important for us. One, because we think it helps you to think intentionally about your giving. I don't shrink back as a pastor from talking about giving because I know my heart. It's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you to know the joy of following the Lord in faith and obedience through this avenue in your life. All right? But secondly, by you pledging, that helps us because we can be better stewards because we have a better idea of what over the next two years we can expect God to provide. And that just helps us to be better stewards month by month as we're trying to steward what he has provided. And so we're going to ask you on that day, on the 17th, to be prepared as an individual or family. Say, hey, over the next two years in our tithe and our over and above giving, this is what it looks like. 
But also on that day, this is the last thing we're going to wrap up. On that day, it's going to be a significant day for our church, as that day will also be a harvest day. We haven't done that at First West in almost 15 years I've been here. But it's a day where we're asking, again, the people of First West and regular attenders. If you're just here today, if you're visiting our church, listen, this is kind of a family chat moment here. It's a moment for us where we're asking you to consider giving a significant, sacrificial, one-time gift. Right? And we'll talk about the different avenues to do it on that day. Because we're at a unique strategic time where we have the opportunity to take a step of faith here. As you know, the renovations that have happened in this room, the renovations that are currently happening uh, in the worship center, they've come with a cost. And it's coming to a point where we're beginning to start making payment on that cost. And so we're prepared to go into a certain level of debt. And we've talked about this in the past. So I'm not going to rehash it. I'll be happy to visit with you anytime to talk about the details of it, all right? Uh, but we're getting ready in, in the spring. We will come into a place where we'll start to make those payments. But here's what you know. The more we can pay down on the front end is the less that we have to pay per month. The less that we're paying per month to go to debt retirement means that money's going to ministry. And so we think it's a st strategic time for us as a church to say, hey, let's come together, right? Together. Together we give. And on that day, it will allow us to get a jump start on that debt retirement, which will allow us to leverage more resources to go to ministry than debt retirement. So that day is coming on September 17th, a key day in the life of our church as we have an opportunity together to walk in faith. Would you bow your heads with me today? Again, I've given you several different applications to this text today of what it may look like for your response. For some, it's that step of faith that you need to step into the water and watch what God can do. For some today, maybe it's that together we component as you consider what it means to be a part of God's corporate body, a part of the family here that, man, you've been attending this church, but you really haven't been doing your part to be a part of our family. And today, the Spirit of God is just whispering and saying, hey, it's time to lean in. It's time to lean in. But the entire nation crossed the river together. And man, what I've seen in my life is there are things that I can experience that are good, but when I experience with others, it becomes great. Maybe today the Lord's just calling you to lean in even more to what it means to be a part of the First West family. Maybe today God's calling you to walk with expectation that he and he alone are the, is the one that can do wonders among you and in you and through you. Maybe today your response is that you need to say yes to this God. You recognize your sin before this holy, perfect God. And today you're ready to receive what Christ did for you so that you can take off the defilement of sin and you can put on the righteousness of God through the blood that was shed for you by Jesus. Father, today we're grateful for this time together. And Lord, we love our church. We know that we are far from perfect. But we recognize that we are your bride. And Lord, our desire is to present ourselves as beautiful as we can to you. And God, when you look on, on this body of believers, I pray that you would see us as people who we want to follow your presence wherever you're leading. And we want to walk by faith, Lord. We want to take those moments where you have to show up, Lord. We're, we're living in such a way that, that we're trusting you and taking you at your word, Lord. And we just say, God, you got to come through. And at the same time, Lord, we want to live the ex with the expectation that you are the living God, the Lord of the whole earth. And Lord, that you would do wonders among us. God, we give our hearts, we give our lives to you. Help us to respond, Lord, in however you're calling us to. In your name we pray, amen.